Happy Friday, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Rounding the News, your weekly news roundup presented by me, Liam Sturgis, and of course, Rounding the Earth, this wonderful, fun platform of engaged thinkers and curious investigators of truth. Uh, I just came up with that on the spot, and I'm going to trademark that. All right, so welcome to today's show. This is March 17, 2023, Chief Influence of Justice. Before we get into the show, just a quick shout out to everybody who's joining us over on Rumble and on Locals. Um, thank you for being in the chat with us and wherever else you may be watching. And wherever that is, whether Rumble, Rockfin, Odyssey, each of these have a way for you to support the show if you'd like to. Rumble has this thing called Rumble Rants. They're like paid comments. If you're in the Rumble chat, you'll see a little green dollar sign. Click on that. Click on the amount. Send your love. Rockfin and Odyssey have their own tip options as well but even better come join us over at roundingtheearth.locals.com that is our locals community where a ever-growing group of very kind intelligent people are coming together to uh, share research and mostly just be cool people together in the same space there uh, are that you can be a free member. You don't have to sign up for anything paid if you don't want to, um, and you can keep track of everything we're doing. However, you can also get a free month of premium support by using the promo code that is pinned on the top of our locals feed, and you can get access to our weekly supporters exclusive live streams where we talk about stuff that uh, we're, we're thinking out loud about, not quite ready to put into the public sphere. Um, but yeah, come hang out, roundingtheearth.locals.com. For example, this past week, Matthew gave an, a very interesting discussion on uh, the current global banking implosion, as he put it. Uh, very informative, as always. So, uh, after just a quick check to make sure everything is working okay, we are going to jump right in. All right, let's do this. So, do, 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 do. First of all, I'm going to do a series of recommended watches for this week. Item one, Jay Cooey and Paul Alexander join forces. Dr. Paul Alexander, PhD, joined forces with our friend Jonathan Cooey on a pair of live stream discussions this past week on GigaOM Biological. The pair brought together their converging perspectives on what actually happened during the COVID-19 era from 2020 to present working through the nuances of how infectious clones of an RNA virus may have been used as a multi-pronged biological and psychological attack on people around the world. As Dr. Alexander repeatedly reminds the audience, the genius behind their discussion is not that either person claims to have the full picture, rather that both sides are openly exploring the possibility that the entire mental model of the COVID-19 pandemic needs to be revisited and reassessed based on the evidence as it is. I recommend you follow Dr. Paul Alexander on Substack and GigaOM Biological on Twitch. And I will mention as well that today, the show notes are available to follow along with where you'll find the links to uh, basically everything we discussed. So if you're in the Rumble chat or the Locals chat, that will be available to you um and uh yeah um and it's also posted on the uh randomgear.local.com feed which is in the description so moving forward banking collapse and fed now on the unlimited hangout podcast yesterday writer and researcher whitney webb was joined by guests marty bent and michael krieger to discuss 
the background and implications of the escalating global banking crisis that seems to just have popped out of nowhere for most people. One thing I want to point out in particular that I found really interesting from this show is Whitney's mention of a service being rolled out right now by the Federal Reserve System called FedNow, which looks like it could operate as the basis of a central bank digital currency. I'm sure nobody is too surprised, but I highly recommend checking out this episode of Unlimited Hangout. And finally, very excited about this. On Tuesday, Rounding the Earth founder Matthew Crawford appeared for an interview with Mike Adams, the health ranger, founder of Brighteon and Natural News. Of course, one of the platforms on which Rounding the Earth, the podcast gets posted, is Brighteon. So we're very happy to be there. For some reason, Facebook doesn't let us post that link, though, which is I find very interesting. Uh, their open and friendly discussion focused on Matthew's Chaos Agents series and touched on a number of other interesting areas of discussion. I'm very happy to have helped set this one up, and I look forward to their next conversation, hopefully very soon. All right, moving into our first real story of the day, Moderna patent lawsuit goes to discovery. Pfizer is not the only company fighting to keep COVID-19 vaccine-related evidence hidden from the courts, and by extension, the public. After a March 10th decision by District Court Judge Mitchell Goldberg, Moderna will have to face the process of discovery. Moderna is defending themselves in a lawsuit that centers around the company's use of patented lipid nanoparticle technology in their COVID-19 genetic vaccine products technology over which some half a dozen or more biotech companies continue to wrestle over ownership for a deeper dive into the developmental history of the of the lipid nanoparticles and the dozens of associated patents i recommend everyone take the time to read through my prior article titled follow the patents lipid nanoparticles and covid-19 genetic vaccines it's long but it's worth the read and don't do what my friend Sonia did and skip to the end. Totally missing the point. <laughs> so, in March 2022, Vancouver-based Arbutus Biopharma and its partner company, Genovant Sciences, or sorry, Royvant Sciences. Genovant or Royvant? Hmm. No, Genovant. There you go. I used the wrong logo, but the correct company in there. Ah, filed a lawsuit asserting that Moderna had knowingly violated its intellectual property rights. The complaint cites the following specific patents under its control. I'm not going to list all the numbers, but two of them refer, well, one, two, three, four, five of them refer to lipid formulations for nucleic acid delivery, and one of them refers to lipid compositions for nucleic acid delivery. So presumably these patents are all referenced, they're all used in the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine product. Notably, the United States government filed a so-called statement of interest on February 14, 2023, asserting that the mRNA-1273 product in question was developed for the government, requesting that they take over for Moderna as defendants in the case. And of course, it is true that NIAID, the United States government, is accepting royalty payments for that particular product. Okay. Here's the good news, going off script for a second. Once discovery occurs, that then uh, has the potential to become public uh, as a part of public court filings. So things that 
Moderna is compelled to release to the uh, to the um, plaintiff. Uh, so hopefully that will be the case. And that is what's going on as well with the Pfizer lawsuit that Brooke Jackson brought. They're right now fighting tooth and nail to keep discovery from happening. So we've now reached that same part here. Okay, next topic. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. seems to be moving ahead with his presidential run. The heir to the legendary Kennedy political dynasty, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., seems to be moving ahead with the initial steps in a run for President of the United States. On March 11, 2023, RFK published an article on his Substack newsletter calling for funding and volunteers to explore the viability of a presidential run. The statement coincided with the third anniversary of the World Health Organization's declaration that COVID-19 was officially considered a pandemic, a move perhaps not lost on Kennedy's allies. Now, there's an interesting series of events that went into this. Steve Kirsch, an ally of RFK, published an article on his, oh, for, uh, forgive me, had started discussing his intentions to create a super PAC or a super political action committee to draft Kennedy to run for president as early as January 2023, announcing as much on this January 23 live stream of the Vaccine Safety Research Foundation alongside Dr. Robert Malone. He followed this up with a February 13 article on his Substack titled, I'm forming a super PAC to draft RFK Jr. to run for president, requesting volunteers. But as I was writing that, I realized, in fact, I remember him saying this even sooner or alluding to the idea that Kennedy might be interested in running for president way back in December 2021 during an appearance on the Alex Jones show. And I thought I would play that for you now. Segment and all your other big news, but why can't we get Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to run again? I mean, I guarantee you Republicans and Democrats would vote for him. He'd be the next president. Um, I, I, I agree with you, Alex. But he has no intention, does he? Um, uh, let's just say I can't talk about that, Alex. Oh, boy. Well, he's what we need. How coy of him. <laughs> um, I don't know how many people were aware that that had, uh, that, that had happened or that Steve Kirsch even appeared on the Alex Jones show. So there you go. Now, in terms of public reaction, well, Politico described Kennedy as the vaccine apostate. I'm not even sure what that word means, to be honest and implied it wouldn't necessarily be ideal if he was given a platform on the debate stage, but that's okay. All right, now to our main story for the day. Potential conflict of interest, who's surprised, in British Columbia vaccine passport lawsuit. This lovely gentleman right here is Chief Justice Christopher Hinkson. So here's what happened. Chief Justice Hinkson, Chief of the Supreme Court of British Columbia is under new scrutiny, as the media people say, for a potential conflict of interest involving his position on the board of directors for the Vancouver Foundation. On March 12th, Kip Warner of the Canadian Society for the Advancement of Science in Public Policy, or CSAP, published an investigative article outlining this concern. So here's some background. CSAP had filed several legal challenges in response to government measures introduced related to COVID-19. One of these cases centered on so-called vaccine passports, which CSAP argued 
violated the rights and freedoms of Canadians. British Columbia's provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, was named as the defendant. Although the hearings themselves seemed to suggest that Hinkson was weighing the evidence reasonably and potentially, in fact, in favor of CSAP, he returned with a disappointing decision to dismiss the case in September 2022. As Warner explained in his status update, he disagreed. We disagreed with his disagreement. Warner argued that Hinkson made several mistakes in his ruling, particularly failing to recognize that, for various reasons, he was, in fact, legally required to evaluate whether the public health orders related to vaccine passports violated Section 7 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Section 7 describes protections to life, liberty, and security of the person. In fact, we previously covered the specific reason why this was an error that he did not perform this constitutional evaluation. Nonetheless, he needs to. Now, disagreement on the law does not necessarily suggest that the other side of the argument is corrupt. Not everyone you disagree with is a bad guy. Even good judges make bad decisions from time to time, whether as a personal failure or simply a different reading of the law. In this case, it seems clear that the court will have to take a closer look at the basis on which Judge Hinkson dismissed the case and return to the table if CSAP is correct in their argument. But what if there exists another factor around Hinkson that is at risk of interfering in the decision-making process? As Warner revealed in his article, just such a factor may have been identified. So in addition to serving as the province's chief justice, a tremendously powerful position, he also serves as a member of the board of directors for the Vancouver Foundation. As Kip explains, this isn't new. The board seat that he occupies has been reserved for whoever holds the office of chief justice since the foundation's founding in 1943. And here is a screenshot of the law as it's written. Like other foundations we've come to know and love, uh, the Vancouver Foundation receives money from donors and also gives money to people and organizations for various uses. So Warner explains, I quote, the foundation, like most, endeavors to not disperse the principle of their funds. Instead, they invest it with the assistance of portfolio managers that work at major financial institutions like Toronto Dominion or TD Bank. These portfolio managers are tasked with generating dividends, returns from investments, to regularly increase the CTF. These proceeds are then distributed to various nonprofits and charities seeking donations in response to applications. But problematically, Hinkson is privy to which specific investments the fund is making. It is not a blind trust. That means he has direct knowledge of, for example, which pharmaceutical companies the Vancouver Foundation has a financial interest in, either directly or through exchange-traded funds, ETFs, like groups of investments. Kip does a great job in his status update laying out why this is a problem for those who can't put two and two together. I quote again, the potential conflicts transcend merely CSAP's affairs, with the Vancouver Foundation donating to various policing charities 
and the chief justice potentially presiding over criminal matters, endless new questions are raised about every destination of the foundation's money. <sighs> now, Kip and I spoke on the phone a couple days ago after I read the story, and it's clear there's an even deeper set of relationships that the general public should know about and understand. I have taken it upon myself to attempt to expand on what Kip has thus far presented and add a further dimension to the problematic exchanges of money and soft influence around the Vancouver Foundation. So let's start by expanding on the donations to various public health agencies that Kip covered in his article. So here's a nice little graphic I put together. In fiscal year, so I'm, I'm now going to quote from his article. In fiscal year 2021, the Vancouver Foundation donated to the Public Health Association of British Columbia $193,072 and to Fraser Health Authority some $93,000. The year prior of 2020, Vancouver Coastal Health Authority received $100,000 from the foundation. A charity set up by the British Columbia Centre for Disease Control to receive donations, the BC CDC Foundation for Population and Public Health, received $13,000. During the onset to the alleged pandemic in 2019, many of you will recall the traditional intellectual safeguards were largely mute. The British Columbia Civil Liberties Association received $151,000. Other recipients during that fiscal year include the BCCDC's foundation at $57,000, Fraser Health Authority at $41,000, the Registered Nurses Foundation of British Columbia at $4,000, and a charity set up by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation at $1,000. The previous fiscal year of 2018, the BCCDC Foundation again received $57,000, Fraser Health Authority $41,000, the BC Civil Liberties Association $36,000, and once again, $1,000 for the CBC's charity. Okay, there you go. So those are the logos of those organizations. If you live around where I do, you'll recognize some or all of them, uh, at least two of them. Um, well, let's just say Fraser Health and Vancouver Coastal Health have uh, taken great steps to influence how I live my day-to-day -day life. Let's just say that. So let's focus on the BCCDC Foundation for Public Health. Um, so it is, as mentioned, it is the fundraising partner for the British Columbia Center for Disease Control. They are separate organizations. As Kip outlines, the foundation has repeatedly turned around and redonated the funds given to it by not just the Vancouver Foundation, but redonated to just a couple of recipients. I'm going to quote again. In fiscal year 2021, the BCCDC Foundation donated to the Provincial Health Services Authority $140,000, $247. Man, these numbers start to roll together. The year prior of 2020, an amount of $487,000 was donated to the PHSA. In 2019, they received $588,000. In 2018, they received $290,000. 2017 was $426,000. And the BC CDC Foundation in 2017 donated to the CDC itself $15,000. Ah, too many numbers. Recall that PHSA 
is Dr. Bonnie Henry's employer. And Dr. Bonnie Henry is a defendant named in all of our litigation, including the petition in which the Chief Justice presided over. It is impossible for any reasonable person to characterize the movement of substantial sums of money in this manner under the, under the direction of the Chief Justice as, at the very least, not carrying the perception of a conflict of interest. End quote. I'll also add that Henry used to work for the BCCDC from December 2013 to August 2014. Yeah, I'd say this looks like a pretty cozy, long-term financial relationship. But the intrigue continues. Until recently, the BCCDC Foundation's board of directors counted as an advisor one Jennifer Gardy, who went on to be hired as Deputy Director of Surveillance, Data, and Epidemiology at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in February 2019. She had advised the BCCDC Foundation starting in 2011 and continued to do so into the at least into the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, while in her new role at the totally not involved Gates Foundation. <laughs> Uh, furthermore, the foundation's donors, the BCCDC foundation's donors over the last several years include none other than Pfizer, GlaxoSmithKline, Merck, AbbVie, and Gilead Sciences, all pharmaceutical companies whose therapeutics and vaccines were aggressively promoted during the province of British Columbia's COVID-19 response. And just to make sure we're being specific, for those who don't know, Pfizer, they were promoting their Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine, otherwise known as BNT162B2, as well as Paxlovid. GlaxoSmithKline, they were promoting a, a couple of different monoclonal antibody products, as well as Medicago's virus-like particle plant-based vaccine. They were Medicago's partner on that one. Merck, obviously, Molnupiravir, AbbVie, Kalitra which I think was another monoclonal antibody, and Gilead Sciences, the ever-deadly Remdesivir. So, now, it's, it, it was not a passing relationship between the foundation and these pharmaceutical companies. In fact, in the, the foundation's 2017-2018 annual report, they specifically highlight Pfizer as one of their original partners. I quote, this year, we would like to acknowledge Pfizer, one of our original partners, supporting activities since early days and demonstrating a remarkable relationship and successful partnership. Pfizer's support has enabled us to develop our capacity and key activities, such as our strategic planning process and to support innovative immunization activities, such as kids boost immunity. Keep that in your head. We're going to come back to that and the Western Immunization Forum. We truly appreciate the ongoing commitment, support, and confidence in our mission, and are optimistic that Pfizer will continue to be part of our success. Oh, I have no doubt they wound up being part of the success, if you want to call it that. Talk about a glowing review. Funnily enough, though, if you go to the Foundation's Public Health Champions donor page now and look for Pfizer, GlaxoSmithKline, or Gilead in particular. They're not there anymore. Hmm. 
I wonder why. Okay, now moving on. Another of the Vancouver Foundation's grant recipients is the Public Health Association of British Columbia. PHABC is largely focused on combating vaccine hesitancy, as affirmed in the organization's most recent annual report. Now, I said keep Kids Boost Immunity in your head. Well, this organization co-leads Kids Boost Immunity, a vaccine promotion initiative funded by, well, there they are, none other than Pfizer, GlaxoSmithKline, and Merck, among a bunch of others. Yikes, you can't make this stuff up, guys. So let's leave it at that for now. Um, I think the point is is made here. And um, as someone in the province of British Columbia, I'd like to wave a little, uh, which, which color flag should I wave? Sam, which color flag should I wave? White. You want me to wave a white flag? She showed me a book that is the color white. Okay, so we give up. Good job, everybody. It was a good run while it lasted. Well, uh, I have some friends who are doctors who don't intend to, and let's speak about that. The province of British Columbia, everybody, is in dire straits, <laughs> and apparently we're supposed to give up now. But many people don't know the extent to which BC is in dire straits. Our new premier, David Eby, pushed through the terribly concerning Bill 36 without fanfare, threatening to consolidate all of British Columbia's professional health colleges, including allied health colleges, into an authoritarian, censorship-prone system without recourse for practitioners or patients alike. It even contains language that basically, actually explicitly, paves the way for the World Health Organization's pandemic treaty with teeth to actually become enforceable law in the province. This is not good. How did this happen? Where, I think I was just born into this. But it's becoming more and more clear each day that British Columbia's institutions, in particular, have been captured. Perhaps more than others. Maybe they were grown captured. Many people can feel it. But we've lacked the understanding, I think, of how or, or, or what such corruption looks like in the real world. We get it conceptually, but how does it actually manifest? Now, Kip made it clear to me on the phone that he is not asserting that Judge Hinkson did exercise any hard influence over the outcome of his COVID-19 related cases, including Kip's, or that hard influence was exercised over Judge Hinkson by outside forces such as Pfizer, per se. Rather, what we're looking at is a system of soft power one which by its very nature causes interests to become confused and misbalanced. Intention is not necessary to define outcome here. Of all institutions, of course, the judiciary is supposed to be the most independent, the fair balancing, the weighing of the facts and the exercise of the law. But if this is not the case, then this must be addressed by uninformed, an enthusiastic public. The Western Standard reported that concerns over Hinkson's potential conflict of interest quietly circulated via email threads and private messaging groups since last week. You know the ones 
We're all in them. Maybe not these ones specifically, but we're overloaded with Signal and Telegram chats that we'll never keep up with. People usually jump to conclusions in those or get all excited about things as they come, and it's understandable. But in this case, I applaud the cautious approach taken by Warner, the CSAP, and their peers, and I look forward to seeing where the case goes from here. Now, that's all for today, folks. So please, don't forget, if you haven't yet, join us at www.roundingtheearth.locals.com. Join our community and become part of the, what do we call it, the burgeoning research community to help us unflatten the earth and perhaps clean up British Columbia's judicial system if you have some extra time to help us do so. Uh, <laughs> and you can find me at liamsturgis.com. And I look forward to seeing you all again very, very soon. Thank you for watching. Have an excellent rest of your afternoon. <music>